Here's what you need to know as we continue our story this week. In 538 BC, the Persian king Cyrus the Great issued a decree that allowed the Jewish captives to finally return to their homeland. Shortly afterwards, a wave of people made the trek from Babylon back to Judah, but not everyone. Some of the Jewish people remained in Babylon for several more generations. Those who did return struggled to maintain their identity as the people of Yahweh. They had been in captivity for about 70 years, which means many of them had never lived in the Promised Land, had never worshipped in the temple, and knew little about all the ins and outs of the Mosaic Law. On top of all this, their land had been repopulated by settlers from other nations, and their capital city, Jerusalem, was in ruins with no walls to protect it from enemies. But God would not leave them to fend for themselves. First, he sent prophets like Zechariah and Haggai to spur the people on toward faithfulness and the rebuilding of the temple. Then, in 458 BC, he brought a scribe named Ezra home in a second wave of Babylonian captives. Ezra had a passion for God's law, and he taught the people how to understand and obey it once again. Finally, in 445 BC, God sent an official from King Artaxerxes' royal court back to Jerusalem to lead the people in rebuilding its walls. The official's name was Nehemiah. So as we uh, enter into our story this morning, um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're not, not hard to find, except if you go to where you think they might be, which would be near the old or the, near the, uh, the end of the Old Testament, they're not going to be there actually. They're going to come right after the books of First and Second Chronicles. So under that historical section, um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come right after that. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and then the book of Job. And uh, there you're going to find those two books, uh, one Ezra, named after the, the scribe, and then one Nehemiah, named after the cupbearer. And we are going to be looking at their story and seeing how we can answer a very difficult question, learning to trust God again. One of those age-old questions: How do you how do how do you learn to trust God? How do you have faith? What happens when someone says, "Well, you just need to believe"? What does that mean? How do you believe? How do you believe more? The disciples actually said to Jesus in one encounter, "Increase our faith." That's a great question. Another man said, "I do believe, but help me in my unbelief." I, I've lived there. So what we are going to be doing is, is watching a people try to understand this, a people that are devoted to God, uh, people that have struggled in their devotion to God, are now coming together um, after this very difficult time in their history. It's interesting that the, the books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all three of those happened during this time. The book of Job, we don't know when that happened. Most likely, when you look at the names that are mentioned, that could have happened back in the time of the patriarchs. But the reason why it's there is because the book of Job came to life for the people of Israel during that time. While they find themselves ruined, in exile, feeling abandoned by God, they, they take this book and they begin to read it like they've never read it before. Much like many of you, I love to ask people, what's your favorite book? And it's amazing the number of people who say to me, the book of Job, why would that be your favorite? It's usually because I've gone through difficulty. I know what it's like to feel like I'm at the end. And so we're going to be looking at that question from 
these two, um, these two books written by these two men um, with some very interesting uh, responsibilities that they had under King Artaxerxes' rule. So during the time period of the Persians, and uh, like I said, we're going to try to figure out what does it mean to actually trust again. Um, this recently, I was back in Canada, and I had an opportunity to, to go and to visit my sister. Um, by the way, I need to say this because she listens. She is my favorite sister. Uh, her name is Diana. I refer to her often. She is very much a pillar of strength and an example of faith to me. When she was 12 years old, uh, she was confined to a wheelchair because of some medical problems that she had in her life. And so for the last 48 years, she's lived her life confined to a wheelchair. And so when you go home and visit, you go to mom's place and you go to, uh, you went to Andrea's parents' house, you went to Andrea's sister's house, you went to my brother's place. And then we went to a, a home, a facility where my sister Diana lives, where she can be cared for. Um, she absolutely has everything up here. Um, it's from here down that's causing some difficulties for her. And so it's always been kind of strange for me to kind of go into her world. So when you're a child and you're kind of thrust into that, everything is, is, is complicated to, to be around a lot of people that have um, physical and, and learning disabilities. And so it's been a real blessing and a real challenge for me. And so Andrew and I made sure that we took time and we got to visit with her. And so uh, she said to me, hey, I listen to you and you don't talk well about Canada. You make fun of it all the time. And so I said to her, I said, well, two things. Number one, you know me. Hello. And the second thing is, you know Canada. So I don't understand what's confusing about this. You know I love to joke about things, and you know Canada. So how do these people, she says, listen, you always say that nothing good comes out of Canada. And you need to, you know, you need to quit saying that. And so um, I, I said, first of all, I never make fun of my wife. She came out of Canada. She's awesome. So Canada does get it right. And Canada, also, I don't know if you know this, but Canada is the place where my favorite sister, Diana, actually uh, lives. And so some good things come out of there. So we were visiting with her one day, and she said to me, something terrible happened. And I said, well, what, what happened? And she was, I mean, kind of, kind of joking, but I couldn't tell if she was just trying to make light of it. Sometimes in her circumstances, it's almost like a defense mechanism. And, and she said, well, somebody came by and, and had given her some garlic toast which I, I like garlic toast too. And so she was all excited and she was kind of preparing a time, a very special time when she'd be able to eat this garlic toast. And although she has a refrigerator in a room, she doesn't have like a microwave or a toaster oven. And so she found some really good uh, aged cheddar that she was going to put on this garlic toast. And she goes into the common eating area and she puts the garlic toast in the microwave and she gets it to the perfect temperature. And while she was doing that, Todd came in and stole her garlic toast. Now, I have no idea who Todd is, but I'm mad at this point in time. How dare you steal my sister, my sister, in the circumstances that she is in, how dare you steal her garlic toast? And so I was deeply offended by this. Diana was deeply upset by this whole thing. She said, I sat there and I was just, I was just crying. I can't believe someone stole my garlic toast. And, and I, as, I'm, as I'm crying and as I'm trying to get over this, and I just I started thinking, well, I, hope, I hope Todd gets sick. And God, make Todd sick for stealing my garlic toast. And I'm beginning to think, Diana, calm down. This is garlic toast. She le later began to say how, how deeply convicted she was by this prayer that she started saying to God over and over and over again, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Please don't make Todd sick. Please don't make Todd sick. I shouldn't feel that way about Todd because Todd has early onset dementia, like way early onset. 
He doesn't know what he's doing. And then my sister said in her classic way, but he stole my garlic toast, and that's not fair, and that's not right. I was so looking forward to this. Now, by that point in time, Andrea and I don't know if we're supposed to laugh or cry. How, how, do, you, how do you say to someone, relax, like this is so petty, this is so silly. There are, Diana, there are bigger problems. Okay, here's me. Okay, I drove in, I walked in, I, I get to leave and go back to the comforts of my life and I'm going to sit here and like pontificate to my sister about how she's being petty about her garlic toast. And I just had to sit here and think, you know, if I was her and I was just trying to make something out of the smallest thing, maybe I'd be pretty mad too. That's life, isn't it? Just trying to make bigger smalls. To learn to, to trust in the midst of disappointment. And whether it's a wheelchair or garlic toast, every one of us has to deal with this question about how do we trust God? And how do we learn to trust Him when our city when our lives, when our marriage, when our relationships, when our finances lie in ruin. And this is what the people of Israel are doing. Now notice this. God never leaves them alone. And he doesn't just leave them alone by always being there. You know, we say that a lot. God's always there and he's always with us, which is always true. But God does more than that. God sends us people like Ezra and Nehemiah. People who come into our brokenness. People who, by God's grace, begin to remind us of things that we need to be reminded of. They encourage us, and maybe even sometimes very strongly so, they challenge us. They remind us it's just garlic toast. Or sometimes they remind us it's just a wheelchair. And one day, things will be better. God uses a scribe of the priestly order who is in somehow involved, I think, in the, in the political arena in the Persian Empire under Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah, a cupbearer, somebody who stands in a very trusted position before the great king Artaxerxes. We don't know if it's the first or the second, but stands in front of this great king and says, hey, like I'm a representative of Yahweh God. I believe in him fully. I'm devoted to him completely. And I'm here to serve you too. And these two men are then kind of in this incredibly interesting place where they are helpful to their worldly leaders, but more so being used by God for their brothers and sisters in the faith. And God transplants these men and says, well, I've got a bigger job for you to do than just being a cupbearer and being some kind of uh, governor. I, I want you to go back to Israel and I want you to be uh, part of the rebuilding process. Now, by the way, we talk a lot about Ezra being the one who helped make sure that the temple was finally completed, and we'll see that happen. Well, let's talk about Nehemiah as this incredible leader who knew how to get things done and to rebuild the walls, which were an integral part of the life in Jerusalem. But more than that, they are used by God to rebuild faith at a critical time in Israel's history. So some things that we are going to see by this, again, 
learning to trust God again in the midst of brokenness is something that we've got to figure out. It's something that they needed to figure out. So I don't know if this is what Nehemiah and Ezra were thinking or doing. No, they're just living life and we get to follow their steps. And one of the things that we see in both books, but we're going to begin in the book of Ezra. One of the things we're going to see is they, 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 they sense that what people need in the midst of their brokenness is to remember the deep and trustworthy promises of God. Because in the midst of ruin, it's hard to see splendor. And I love how this verse describes Ezra. I want you to look at Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. And again, I'm, I'm not walking through all of these books, but I am going to look at the books kind of in their entirety. And one of the things that we notice about Ezra, before he does anything outwardly, he recognizes the need for him personally. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 describes Ezra in this way. For Ezra had set his heart, which is interesting because we always think about study in the mind. But Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. He set his heart that I'm going to know the word of God. I'm going to love the word of God. And I'm going to do the word of God. I, it's funny how often we kind of pit these two things against each other. Boy, it's all this head knowledge, all these Christians are interested in is head knowledge. Like somehow that's a bad thing. I'm very grateful for those doctors who work on my children. I'm really grateful for all their head knowledge, aren't you? I'm really grateful for all those people that build roads and airplanes. I'm grateful for their head knowledge. I'm grateful when I fly that these planes weren't built from the heart. Like, I'm glad that they built them from the head. And, and so we do this, right? We, we want to almost pit heart versus mind. I get what we're trying to say. Notice the integration of these for Ezra. Like, I, I want to know God. Like, in order to trust him, I need to know him. I need to know who he is. And as we have seen, so much of Israel's history has been a not remembering because they're not doing what they were told to do, which is moms and dads, tell your kids about your faith. Tell your kids about God's faithfulness to you. Remind them when they wake up and when they go to sleep. Speak about it. When they're getting, they're getting ready to go onto the school bus, remind them of God's faithfulness to them. Repeat it over and over and over again. Say prayers with them before they go to sleep. You've got to stand in that gap and just remind them and remind them and remind them. And that hadn't been happening. Now, this is where it gets interesting because I'm a preacher and I'm here to talk to you. But this text really isn't about you. Like, this text actually is about me. This text doesn't say, Jim, you need to go tell everyone that they need to go and study the law. Now, this text says to me, I've got to love the law. I'm not here to talk to you today. At least not on this point. I'm here to be personally convicted by this. Before I can ever stand up and say, you know what you need to do? I need to get over the first part of this. Ezra set his heart. Ezra set his heart, first and foremost, not to pontificate on what others need to do, not to try to fix everybody else's problems, not to try to understand the world from everybody else's perspective, but Ezra set his heart, Ezra set his will on God and on God's word. And then from there, it's amazing how God works. I don't know what you need to do, but I read this text, and I recognize what he was devoted to, and I don't mean to be selfish when I say this, 
what Jim Johnson needs to do, because he, he lives in a broken situation. His marriage isn't perfect. I know you're right, mostly my fault. My kids need help. Uh, the community in which I live in, they, they need me to what? Tell them what to do? No, before we ever get there, and we'll get there, before we ever get there, to set my heart, and not just to know, but to do it. And then to allow God, through his spirit, to spill over from there. The reason why Ezra was so well respected was he wasn't trying to find things out to be a know-it-all. He wasn't trying to figure things out just for others. That will always come back and bite you. But in the end, he knew that what I need to do is to set my heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And as we can see over time, to teach others to do the same thing. Jump over to the book of Nehemiah. We'll see how this ministry that Ezra began in his own study, in his own time with God, then began to spill over because this is what happens the more that we know who God is, the more that we learn to trust God, God, in his providential, sovereign care, pushes us outward. The more that we know him and the more that we trust him, God just naturally, in the circles of discipleship that he has placed us in, he begins to extend in his time, in his purposes, so that we can then become a blessing to others. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, notice how now we see these two um, compadres, these two uh, leaders working now side by side. Nehemiah recounts this story here. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And all the people gathered as one man into the square. Now remember, the city is still not exactly where it needs to be. Certain things have been done and certain things need to be done. The walls are rebuilt, but there's not everything completely done yet. And so there's a lot of brokenness that still exists. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. It's kind of interesting just how much they want to know the exact date things happened. Notice how many times in Ezra and Nehemiah they do that. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Like these are a people that are starved to know. How did we get here and where do we go from here? God and his word are not just a last resort. They, they get that there's something said, there's something of value. Ezra, read us this. Remind us of what we should know. We need to remember who God is and his promises. And it says he read it from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There is something about brokenness that makes us attentive, isn't there? There really is something. I know that we don't want it. I know that we try to avoid it. I know that we pray that it never happens. But it's so interesting. It's like looking at my sister Diana, which, by the way, have I told you? She's my favorite sister. And I have four. Okay? You think she's my favorite because I have one. No, I have four. But Diana is clearly my favorite. Okay? 
Um, they're laughing because they love you, Di. Anyway, so we're sitting there and we're talking to her. And, 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 and Andrew and I have always have had this with her. How does she find such joy? How does she find such faith and peace? I just don't understand it. And then the more that I reflect on it, and the more that I reflect on God's word, what I find is that somehow in the midst of where she is, in the midst of what she has gone through, she's not just grasping at straws. It is in that brokenness that she sees life from a better perspective than I do much of the time. That in her brokenness, like she learns to crave things that I, with my incredible freedom and mobility, ignore. I think she's the only one that listens to everything we do around here. Why? Well, you might think she doesn't have anything better to do with her time. She describes it like this. I just really look forward to hearing God's truth. And this is what this people now know. Like I know we're broken because we ignored God's law. And I, I know we need to be rebuilt from the very foundation up. And they're ready to listen. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8 kind of summarizes this beautifully. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. <laughs> Interesting. I, I know that we talk a lot about the Bible and how complicated it is and how difficult it is. We love to look, especially at the pages of the Old Testament, and go, I don't know how that all fits together, and you got to figure out all the problems. It's interesting that they read this, and they went, wow, I, I think I got this. I think I understand this. I would argue, and I know this is, I don't think it's just my perspective, but we make more of the, the obscurity. Of, we make more about what we can't understand than the mass amount of information that we can understand. I hear people talk about this all the time. All the different churches and all the different denominations, even in Stillwater, all the different perspectives, all the different interpretations. And yet when you go back and you look at church history, there's something known as the perspicuity of Scripture. That means it's clear. Interesting that the word perspicuity describes clarity, right? By the way, that might say more about us than, than somebody else. The clarity of Scripture. When you say to the church for the last 2,000 years, so do you have a sin problem? The church has uniformly said yes. If you were to say to the church, can you tell us the solution to the problem? They would say God is the solution. Jesus Christ is the Savior. No real debate about that, to be honest with you. And how do we receive this? By faith. It is the grace of God that no one would boast. It is clear. So that Jesus, um, what did he do to accomplish that? The church doesn't go, you know, we've got a couple of options. No, he died in our place for our sin. And, and did he stay dead? The church doesn't go, well, again, we've got a cup. No, I've been to the tomb. It's empty. He rose from the dead. It's amazing how much we agree upon. I know there are things that we can still disagree about. We're human. But when you go back and you look at the scriptures, don't listen to what other people say. Don't listen to all of the accentuated obscurities, the amount of singularity that the church has spoken on these subjects for thousands of years, different people in different places during different times, it's far more clear. This is what Ezra's doing. 
I really do believe it's, it's a smokescreen for many of us today. I'm having a hard time reading the Bible because I just don't get it. No, listen, there is a responsibility for those who are teaching it. I hear this. I feel this. There is a responsibility for us to teach it clearly and plainly and truthfully. But it's also clear to understand. Do you know God loves you? Do you know that God is holy? Do you know that you're not without Jesus? Do you know that you need to repent of your sin? Do you know that you need to trust him and find joy and peace in him? Do you know he's coming back again? I'm assuming the silence there was yes, 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 yes. See? It's clear. And sometimes we need to be taken down to that smallest, smallest denomination so that we can feel the deepest truths about God. Remembering God's promises. Well, that's not it. We're also going to talk about restoring peace. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting to me because one of the major themes in the book of Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls. And yet, if you were to ask me, especially if you were to back me up in time, you know, I'm getting, uh, as I get older, I pray that I'm getting wiser, which is knowledge put to use. But I think I was a lot more bold and a lot smarter when I was younger. When I was a freshman in college, I, I knew how to fix the church. I knew all the problems with the church. Um, I knew all the, the faults. I, I knew what you guys were doing wrong. And uh, it, it only got worse my sophomore year. You know what the word sophomore means, right? Sophomore means wise fool. Okay? And so it's just basically the freshman times two. It usually doesn't get better until, actually, I would even argue after college. But I remember thinking that, you know, if we could just get back, reduce it to its basic elements, if we could just be idealistic, if we could just be relentlessly passionate, then all of the world's problems would, would, would dissolve. Which means when I was looking at this Nehemiah text, I had to wonder, what's the big deal about the walls? Well, the walls represent safety and security. I can imagine that if I were on a team of people that were trying to figure out how do we rebuild this nation, how do we learn to trust God again, I, I would have come up with the idea, let's not build the walls. Wouldn't you? Think about it. If you really want to trust God, why, why build walls? Can you, can you imagine the freshman plan for this? I don't think we need to build walls. That's ridiculous. I think we need to tr learn to trust God in this. Now, the responsible ones of you right now are going, no, that's just being foolish. We need to build walls because they're responsible. Well, you know what? It doesn't say in the Bible that Nehemiah decided to be a responsible person to build the walls. You know what it says? You know, you know what's better than just being foolishly idealistic or creepy responsible? The Bible says that God put it on Nehemiah's heart to do so. See, that's the answer. That beats idealism. And I would argue it beats responsibility. God put it on his heart. And now Katie brought the door. The walls are going to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah has a ton of opposition because as you know, the walls were built to keep the enemy out. And then the walls were torn down by the enemy as God's judgment of the people. And now they want to be rebuilt again. King Artaxerxes, or whoever would be the king, wouldn't want there to be walls. What, what, if, what if they rebel? Aren't walls themselves a sign of this rebellion against Artaxerxes? And God put it on the heart of Nehemiah to go to the king and say, I want to go back to Jerusalem. You know that really rebellious city? They're always rebellious. And I want to rebuild some walls. Trust me. Do you see the complexity of this? And all those 
factions that live around Jerusalem, they don't want those walls, walls rebuilt. And they're going to send bad reports back to Artaxerxes. You know they're rebelling. You know this is all a ploy. You know you're being used, and it's back and forth and back and forth. And even the people, even the Jewish people are still just treating each other poorly. And the rich are taking advantage of the poor. And Nehemiah comes upon this scene and has to deal with adversity, enemies from without, enemies from within. But God put it on his heart to do so. And these walls need to be rebuilt. One of my favorite things to do when we're in Jerusalem is we're in this area. It's kind of like a mall. And while they were building this, 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 this mall, they, 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 they discovered this, this wall. And as they began to discover it and to discover it, they went, okay, whoa, 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 wait a second. This is Nehemiah's wall. You can actually see it. You're walking through this mall. You look over this railing, and there's this, like, old wall. And then a little tiny post, Nehemiah built this, you know? And you're looking over, you're going, that's cra-. I'm thinking, why didn't you tear down the mall for the wall? Well, they said, well, we don't do that because there would be nothing left. We'd still have to live here. But I'm looking over this balcony, and I can see this wall, and I'm wondering, and there's Nehemiah right there building it. Like, I know it's just a wall. It's amazing how God, as he is restoring trust in us, still does it in his time with very natural and normal things. Nehemiah just doesn't pontificate. He doesn't just think about the idealistic things, about what it means. It's time to rebuild, gentlemen and ladies. And the wall gets rebuilt. He does the things necessary to to squash the rumors about his uh, his rebellion. He, he, he makes sure that the poor stop taking advantage, or the rich stop taking advantage of the poor by excessive interest. And he makes sure the walls are rebuilt. He assigns people to different places. But by the way, this isn't a book. I, I know that we are tempted as, as church leaders, particularly, to try to use this book to glean church lessons about leadership. But this is more about... a an individual, and a nation's faithfulness to God. To restore the peace that comes when the walls are rebuilt. And so we see in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. And so, in the midst of all of this adversity, so the wall was finally finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. In 52 days. Wow, that's amazing. Now, the city's not just like... It's not like Oklahoma City. It is much, 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 much smaller. But still, 52 days is amazing. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. These were the adversaries of them. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Because when God puts it in the heart of God's leaders to lead God's people to do something... Those who are the enemies, their esteem in their own eyes, their, their, their worth in their own eyes goes down because they recognize that God is with them. And you got to admit, if that's how the enemies felt, if their esteem went down because these, this, this mighty, powerful God had helped the people do this, what does that do to the people? Again, I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about people who are beginning to learn to trust God again. Trust God by listening to his promises. Trust God by listening to his leaders. Trusting God by listening to God. Not only does the wall need to be rebuilt, but the last thing we're going to see 
back in the book of Ezra, turn to Ezra chapter 6, is there's another major uh, monument. Uh, right at that particular time, it was still in ruins. It was the temple. Ezra is a, a complicated figure. Coming from the priestly order, obviously the religious practices and the religious places are a big deal to him. And so it's no surprise that the temple is going to be a big deal. Now, Ezra, by the way, is, is, a, is, a, is a hero, right? Like when we look at the book of Ezra, we see him as a hero. But it's, it's good to know, like, what is he heroic about? It's not just studying the word of God. Actually, I would argue that we would have some questions about Ezra. I'm not saying we'd be right about it, but I think we'd have some questions about Ezra. One of the things that Ezra did when he came back, when he came into the land, he found that a lot of the priests and even a lot of the ministers, a lot of the leaders of God's people had done something that God's law had forbidden. And that was to intermarry. Now, by the way, that's not a racial thing. The Bible really didn't have a problem with interracial marriage. It was interfaith marriage that bothered him deeply. So God had no problem with people uh, marrying across different racial lines, but our faith must be the same. The New Testament preaches the same thing. The New Testament warns against two, um, I, I know this kind of sounds bad, but two oxen being unequally yoked. So essentially what the Bible teaches is that if you're a Christian, you don't tie yourself in business or in marriage to someone who's not a believer. And Ezra comes upon this and he sees this and he knows that the law forbids this. And so Ezra does something that really causes a lot of scholars to wonder whether or not it was right because Ezra commands and demands that all of those people divorce. I remember sitting in a class, I was a freshman again, and I remember the professor saying something I'd never heard anybody say before. He disagreed with Ezra's decision to do that. And I just remember thinking, are you allowed to do that? Is lightning going to strike? I don't know. I don't know if it was right or if it was wrong. I've, I've read cases for both, and I think, from my perspective, it was one or the other. I don't know. But can you see his zeal? He, he wants to take God's word seriously. I, I, I think I can now, when you look at Ezra's life, you can begin to understand his passion. And maybe it's true. Maybe it's true that, that, that Ezra was the first that came from this group of people that then got, became known as the, the separated ones. The ones who were so committed to the law that they decided to separate themselves out from the rest. They were so devoted um, to tithing right and to worshiping right and to living right. They were so devoted to God, they became known as the New Testament. They appear on the scene, and do you know what they're called? Pharisees. Now, I know that kind of has a bit of a bad connotation, bad taste in your mouth. Aren't those ones that, that had a problem with Jesus? Yes. That's the best of intentions, though. I believe Ezra, if Jesus is right, and he's always right, if Ezra met Jesus, he would know how to keep his passion for the law and allow Jesus to fulfill all of that. But Ezra is passionate. I would tell you that there really is a problem when we decide that we're just going to throw away everything. That's kind of one of the ways we love to deal with things today. Let's just throw away everything, get down to its basics. But Ezra said, no, we need to go back and we need to rebuild this temple. In the way that walls need to be rebuilt, we need to reestablish worship. We need to do it the way that God told us to do it. 
And by the way, I think that's a, something that we need to hear today. A lot of stuff that we just want to throw to the side and then later wonder, why are we missing some things? I think a lot of it has to do with one of the reasons why we brought back corporate prayer into our midst because we don't do that enough and we should do that. One of the reasons why we gather around the Lord's table every Sunday and we don't even have a table is because we really should do that. There's a lot of things that just kind of get thrown out. Now, by the way, if you want to blame a generation, I think it started roughly 300 years ago. Some might say 2,000 years ago. It's a natural tendency that we have, and Ezra does the opposite. We, we need to go back, and we need to reestablish some of these things. Verse 16, Ezra, chapter 6. And all the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest that returned of the return to exile, celebrated the dedication of God's, of this house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of the house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all of Israel, male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. That'd only be 12. You should have seen how many they sacrificed the first time. That's why this book records those who had seen the first temple and those who had seen the first walls, when these things are being redone, they're kind of crying. And not just from joy, but, oh, you should have seen the first one. But look at verse 18. And then he set the priests in their divisions, the Levites in their divisions, for the service of God in Jerusalem, as was written in the book of Moses. We are going to reestablish worship. So there are things that we can do. We read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. There are leadership principles, and there are things that we can do to make sure that we remember God's promise and we restore peace and we return to right worship. Does that fix our problem? Did you answer, Jim, about how do we learn to trust God again? No. See, what's interesting is that all of these things that we read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, all of these things in this entire series, the gospel of the kings and the prophets, I thought it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is. And everything that they're doing, one of the reasons why I get a little uncomfortable when preachers love to use the book of Nehemiah when they want to build a bigger church is that that's really not what Nehemiah was for. It's really not what Ezra was about. Like Nehemiah and Ezra are doing something that is, that is, is more fundamental to our faith because what they are doing is they are paving the way by the sovereign plan of God. They're paving the way for a king to come to them and a king to come and die for them. And that's just different than what you and I do. What God is doing as people try to remember and as people work in, con in, 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 in work with God, okay, in, in cooperation with God, we work to reestablish peace and to reestablish worship. But God continually, faithfully moves through this world. And what you and I do through these acts of remembering and worshiping and feeling a sense of peace is that we are called into what God is ultimately doing. Because it is ultimately about him and not us. So when I ask you that question, how do we learn to trust God again? One thing that deeply concerns me is I hear a lot of people describing that. Yeah, I'm really trying to trust God again because he really let me down the first time. Even that statement, learning to trust God again, who's the one that dropped the ball on that? I'm telling you, the Bible says it was not him. God does not disappoint. Truth. I think every one of us, if we're honest, feel as though he did. 
do we match those up? I'm telling you, this is why Jesus is, is more than just a figurehead. It's more than just a really cool idea. Because when I look at the life of Christ, when I look at what he gave up to come down here, when I look like how he lived and learning obedience and attending synagogue and going to the temple, and then I see him obediently going to the cross and dying in our place for our sins and rising again and commissioning the, the disciples to continue that ministry and ascending into heaven and sending his spirit upon us, what I find in that is something that I can trust something that I can believe in, something that connects to God's always plan. That yes, there are things that I can do, but ultimately it is to rely on the things that God has always done that provide promise, safety, and worship. And therefore, it is my prayer for us, our prayer for us, that we remember what God has done. When I say that, at the very core of it is Jesus and what he has done for you and what he has done for me. Because he has never and will never disappoint. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus and for just how he makes sense of it all. God, he explains everything to me. And not in a way where it's an answer. I love the fact that you don't provide answers, you provide him. And Jesus is not an answer to my life's problems. He is the answer to life's problems. God, he explains everything in my life from wheelchairs to garlic toast. And so I thank you for him. And I pray that we would fall into, lean into, and trust that story. God, we would share with you our disappointments and see you as the redeemer and restorer of our brokenness. You alone, you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray.